This morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to begin our study of the way of the king, the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you'll join me there. If you brought a Bible, please turn there with me. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback Bible nearby. We want to follow our way together through this scripture. I really hope that one of the results of these many weeks that we're going to spend together in this passage is that we would together give our attention to the words of Jesus, that we would do so not only on our gatherings on Sundays, not only with a careful attention and openness to the word here, but also during the course of our week. While you're turning there, Matthew chapter 5, I want you to hear the word of the Lord when the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation 11, 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this morning, this is true. This is true of our king, and this is true of his kingdom. This is where history is going. This is the end to which God created the world, that Jesus, the Christ, would be king. So, this is true. This is what is so. The the Lord God has ordained it. But the question for us this morning is, is this good? Is this good news? What is the king like? I hear that there's a king, and I hear that he has a kingdom, and the whole of the world is is the, the, the stretch of his rule and reign. But what sort of kingdom has he established? What is the way of his kingdom? Then we turn to Matthew. We're actually going to begin by looking just a few verses before the launch of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to the end of the chapter there. Look at it with me. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Highlight that. Make note of that. That is what he's doing. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What is Jesus doing then? In the next verse, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. What is Jesus doing there when he begins to teach at the beginning of chapter 5? What he's doing is he's explaining the way of the kingdom, the the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. He's explaining why the news of the kingdom coming is good news. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us attentive to your news, your announcement, your proclamation. I pray that we would see the authority of the king who speaks, the king who acts, the king who decrees, and the king who makes it so Lord, on your authority that we would be changed. You would do a work among the people of God even this morning to call us into 
your kingdom to establish your rule and reign in power and in grace among your people this morning, we pray. Give us understanding and humility to to truly hear. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus the King, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to begin by paying attention to the uh, a sermon outline, okay? We've got a sermon here in the, these chapters. It's 5, 6, and 7. So I would encourage you over the next few weeks to just read 5, 6, and 7 over and over again in your households. I know some of you have already begun that and have already told me that you found that to be profitable in your households and, and something to wrestle with, and you'll come with questions, and you'll You'll find answers together in the Word and in prayer together, in in the life of the church together. And in this sermon, it has a sermon outline. Now, it doesn't have a PowerPoint, so we have to pay close attention to see where exactly the points fall in this message. It's not a hard division. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the most accomplished and respected authors who have taken on a study through the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, of the sermon. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. I just suggest right there, and Lloyd-Jones makes the same argument that there is no other kind of Christians. It's not like there's, there's Christians, and there's like true Christians. No, there's only one. And so he says, I'm never tired of saying that what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women would be crowding into our buildings. I would perhaps rephrase that just a bit, given some of the convictions we have at Cross Point Coast, that men and women in our communities would crowd into the life of the church if we lived the life that Christ has given to his people. Across Point Coast, we say it like this. We say that disciples are the face of the church, not programs or campaigns or even sermon series. What if the disciples of Jesus Christ at Cross Point Coast actually lived the Christian life? We were therefore in our life, in our community, and in our life together, We were the face of the church. Lloyd-Jones sees in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' own explanation of what the Christian life is, and we see by the time we get to verses 14 and 15, you can see there it says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? And we see how the Christian life is the light of the world so that all would give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So the Christian life that the king has established is a life that is for the purpose of the glory of God. Jesus seems to agree that a life lived in light of the teaching of his kingdom is a truly compelling life, giving glory to God and life to the people. Lloyd-Jones sees a, a simple outline in the sermon. If you look at the whole thing and read it through a number of times, I think you'll see the same. The first 16 verses of chapter 5, Jesus launches with the character of the Christian. Then in the remainder of chapter 5, the Christian faces the law. Or better yet, Jesus brings the law to bear upon the life of the believer. Then in chapter 6, the Christian lives in the presence 
of God. In Matthew 7, the Christian lives in the fear of God. It's essential that we see this outline so, so that we don't make a particular mess with this sermon. And friends, many messes have been made of this sermon. We must not see the Sermon on the Mount as a series of unrelated teachings that can be removed from their context. So you, you grab just a, a little phrase here and there. And, and friends, people in our culture all around us who don't know anything of the gospel of Jesus Christ know quotations from this sermon. And we pull them out and slip them into our thoughts and our books. We make a mess of Jesus' teaching. We must not see the Sermon on the Mount as a series of unrelated teachings. I think of my own sermons. What a mess any one of us would make with any one of my own sermons if we took one solitary point and then published it and examined it and then tried to follow it. That's not the way that a sermon works. It's not really how any teaching really works. The way that it works is each point is there to tell a larger story to explain a singular main point. The same is true of Jesus' sermon here. There's something that the sermon has to say to us that can only be said with the component parts together. So it's important that we step back and see it before we begin to pay attention closer to the individual parts so we would understand them within the scope of the whole. If you look at the first section, Matthew 5, 1 through 16, we see the character of the Christian. The sermon launches with a poetic blessing that offers a peculiar upside-down sort of wisdom. You see that in the Beatitudes there, right at the beginning of the passage. What do I mean by upside-down? It's the way it's been described quite often. Consider this sampling of Beatitudes from another rabbi named Jesus, who lived just a few generations before the Christ, in the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach. Here's just a sampling of the Beatitudes that he offers. Blesses it as a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is he who is not made a slip with the tongue. Blessed is he who has not served a man inferior to himself. Blessed is he who speaks to attentive listeners. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom comes with a very different set of blessings for the poor in spirit, right? For those who mourn, for the the meek and the merciful, right? It is an upside-down way of thinking. I look at those four Beatitudes of Jesus ben Sirach, and I say, spot on, man. Who doesn't want to see the downfall of their foes to outlast their enemies, Right? Who doesn't want to, when they speak, have attentive listeners? But Jesus, take these these things that are a natural tendency and and a sort of conventional wisdom. And he turns them on their head. We'll have more to say about the Beatitudes at the end of our message today. But for now, let us consider Kent Hughes' explanation of Jesus' pronouncement of these blessings. Kent Hughes, wonderful commentator, he writes this. Contrary to popular opinion, blessed does not mean happy. Even though some translations have rendered it this way, happiness is a subjective state, a feeling. But Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed 
is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. He says, that is a right way in my kingdom. Let me put it this way. Jesus isn't describing the emotional state of his disciples. He's describing his authoritative intention as king and Lord to bless them. It's blessing that will result in our happiness. It's his intention to bless these that they become truly blessed. The Beatitudes are not a description of what Jesus finds to be true. They're a description of what Jesus designs and then makes true in his kingdom. He is king after all. He's describing the authoritative design for the kingdom over which he reigns. He's describing how the way of the kingdom upends the normal ways of the world to to look with favor upon those who are otherwise without any hope. The Beatitudes are the launching point of Jesus' announcement of the good news of his kingdom. Remember, he's going about and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. They're what Jesus has announced to be true by the authority of his lordship. He's saying, I am king, and this is my kingdom. The first priority of the Beatitudes is not to tell you what to do. The first priority of the Beatitudes is to reorient your view of the universe, to offer as a lens corrective for us, to give us the view of the king. The first priority of the Beatitudes is not to tell you what to do, but what to believe, what to understand. You see, the Beatitudes are news. They are the good news of the kingdom. They are to be heard. They are to be pondered. They are to be understood. And they are to be believed. The good news of the kingdom is not is to be received by faith in the king. There's the king. He's describing the way of his kingdom. And because I believe the king and I think he has the authority and power to make it so, I have faith that it will be so. You don't live the Beatitudes any more than you can live the gospel. The Beatitudes find you. They make announcements. And they change you. The world does not need first a church that lives the Sermon on the Mount, though that would be a beautiful thing. The world needs a church that believes it. The world needs a church that looks at the Beatitudes and looks at the Sermon on the Mount and says, I think that's true. I think that is a good way of a good king. The end to which Jesus preaches is that a new people would humble themselves under the way of his kingdom and so find themselves as proper citizens of that kingdom. The people approved by their king, not building the kingdom, but in submission to the kingdom. Participants in his kingdom. This is so important. It's it's corrective to so much of our language. We don't build The kingdom that is nowhere announced by the good news of the king's gracious design. What is announced is our entrance into the kingdom that he has established. Do you hear that? We don't build the kingdom. God's got that. In fact, Jesus, in his own word and deed, 
death and resurrection establishes that kingdom. And in that, he establishes the way by which we enter his kingdom built on his good work. Every man, woman, and child will, in the end, participate in the kingdom. This is true. Some, tragically many, will participate as conquered rebels under the right and good justice of the king. And it's right and good justice. If he's just, he won't put up with rebels in his kingdom. But the blessing and joy that the king holds out in these eight blessings is that there is another people who may participate in the kingdom, not as rebels put down, but as sons of God. That's good news. Are the Beatitudes a description of the Christian? Or are they a description of the way of the king and his kingdom? And if they're the king's way, such that the king would have no other way, then this truly is good news for residents of that kingdom, if we could only enter it. Now, he holds out this character of the Christian, and he holds out this way of entrance into the kingdom that he has established. And then, in the second half of Matthew 5, he holds out the law, and the Christian faces the law. Lloyd-Jones suggests that the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord has called his new commandment. John thirteen thirty four says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. In these verses, the disciples of Jesus are confronted with the fact that the king really does have a law. And he's a king. And with king comes a way, and that way is called his law. The law is the way he intends the people of the kingdom to live their lives. Truly, the Lord has not abolished the law, but rather has come to fulfill the law. He's the one who is completely and utterly righteous according to the law. And he alone, it's this way, it's, it's right to say that Jesus fulfilled the law. But there's another way in which Jesus seems to hold out an explanation of the law in these verses that, that they seem to suggest that the disciples of Jesus Christ are to be a people who are to embody the law in a specific way. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment. But he holds this out. It's just unavoidable if you read it. As if there's something that you and I are supposed to respond to and embody as a result of his declaration of his way. Now, this point is where we go very wrong. We, we take a very simple, succinct explanation in the second half of chapter 5 of the way of the kingdom and turn it into case law. We turn it into detailed infractions and legalistic loopholes regarding anger and lust and rewards and divorce and oaths. Just a bunch of case law and legalistic loopholes. But that's not the purpose of Jesus here. He confronts the disciples with a serious robust way that we are to live together in his kingdom. And yet Jesus seems to be saying something more profound than don't be angry and don't lust in your heart. He seems to see something far more profound than that. What Jesus seems to be saying is less a series of do's and don'ts by which we can measure our self-righteousness. 
He seems to be doing something more like what the psalmist describes in Psalm 19. Listen. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You can hear, blessed. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Can you hear the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? It's a hungering and thirsting, not for self-righteousness, but for the righteous reign of a king. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the comb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In them there is great reward. For years, I've always appreciated music, always wanted to play more music. I've only dabbled in a couple instruments along the way. For years, I thought that playing piano was a simple matter of learning to press the right buttons in the right order. This is the part where you pianists just laugh at me. Yeah, I see you. I see you. It turns out that's not really how it works. I gave it a try. In my teen years, I even got a synthesizer. It was the Korg 01W Pro. It was really nice. And I began to program my Korg 01W Pro with sheet music that I had collected. What you do is you simply enter which note is supposed to play at what point and about how loud you want that note to be played. And although I did a good job of it, all the notes were right, what came out really wasn't the music I know the notes on the page were intended to produce. It was technically accurate, but it wasn't beautiful. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. A man may play a piece of great music quite accurately. He may make no mistakes at all. And yet it may be true to say of him that he did not really play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. He played the notes correctly, but it was not the sonata. What was he doing? He was mechanically striking the right notes but missing the soul and the real interpretation. He was doing what Beethoven intended. He, was, he wasn't doing what Beethoven intended and meant. The artist, the true artist, is always correct. Even the greatest artist cannot afford to neglect rules and regulations, but that is not what makes him a great artist. It's something extra, uh, the expression, he says. It's the spirit, it's the life, it's the whole that he is able to convey. I think I'd put it this way. The true artist understands the reality of the music itself. The notes are merely indicators, they're reminders, they're pointers to that which is truly real. Accurate, yeah. Authoritative, absolutely but not the beauty of the music itself. For anyone wanting to know the music of the artist, we must not only know the notes that he's written, we have to listen to the music. And we find that the music is perfect. It's reviving the soul. It's, it's sweeter than honey, the music of the way of the kingdom. In this section of the sermon, 
In chapter 5, the great artist who has fashioned a kingdom of his own design, he flexes his authority and let him do so. Don't excuse Jesus from the commands that he gives in chapter 5. Let him flex his authority over you. He reminds his disciples that he's king. And the king has a way. But let us do well to listen to hear the beauty of the arrangement. If you continue, by the time we get to chapter 6, I encourage you to, to turn there, be looking at it with me as we consider it. We look at the idea that shows up in chapter 6, verse 4. We see it says, the father who sees. Verse 6, your father who sees in secret. Verse 18, your father who sees in secret again. Verse 32, your heavenly father knows what you need. This section of the sermon moves from the commands of the previous section to serious warnings about how the presence and supremacy and provision of God transforms a variety of circumstances. You see, the Christian lives in the presence of God. In many ways, this section moves us from the hard, particular, piercing commands of chapter 5 to a simple principle. And the principle comes with an expectation that we ought to be able to deduce what this means far beyond the examples that are given in this chapter. You see, it seems that the fact that we live in the presence of a holy God ought to affect not just a list of maybe five or six examples that are given. Maybe it changes everything. The principle is this, what if God is actually present? And what if the approval of the Lord alone is the only approval we ever sought? And what if the greatest need of our lives is something that only God could provide? What if God were actually present? Perhaps Jesus is moving from the particular in chapter 5 to something more general and, and principled. Really, think about this. Would we not come to the same conclusion as Jesus about murder, that we ought not to even be angry with our brother if we really understood what God sees in secret? Would, would we not come to the same conclusion as Jesus about adultery, that we ought not even lust in our hearts if we really understood that God sees what is in secret? You see, once we begin to understand the principle, the law becomes, man, that. That's not just a rule. That, that's good. That seems right. That seems to be the only way in light of what is true of our God. And now we're beginning to understand the beauty of the music of the artist. We're coming to understand the principles that stand underneath the ways of the king, and they give them life and vibrancy and sweetness. What if God was everywhere? What if God was all that mattered to us? What if God was good and generous. Surely we would be disciples fit to be citizens of his kingdom if we got that in our souls. He continues in chapter 7. You can see the next section of the sermon, the Christian lives in the fear of God. Now this final section of the sermon is, is really, it's only the logical result of all that's come before. Think about it, right? If the Lord is right to assert his authority by means of these commandments, if the Lord is right to assert his authority, and if 
He has a way that his disciples in this kingdom are to live, and the Lord sees what is in secret, then surely the disciple in this kingdom is consumed at all times with the approval of the Lord. Right? The disciple has a rightly proportioned, fearful consciousness that the kingdom doesn't belong to himself, but to the Lord. That he has entered into a kingdom that already has a king. He's not it. The author of Hebrews is right to say of the life of Christ's kingdom in Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's good news. And therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In all our thanksgiving that we have been brought by grace into the glorious and righteous kingdom of our Lord, a a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us not forget who the Lord is. He's a consuming fire. There's Nothing that is unholy that will not be burned up on the day of his judgment. You pause and you breathe and you think, what what does that mean for me? Jesus opens this section with these words, Judge not, lest that you be not judged. A fearful reminder that all who think themselves righteous will be judged by the only righteous judge. You think you've got it? You think that you are self-righteous? Let the one who is actually righteous and king judge you. We quickly are consoled by that same God with this word that the Father who is in heaven gives good things to those who ask him. The righteous judge whom we ought to fear is also a father whom we might make requests of. We're told that the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Jesus appears to be relentless. The kingdom of the Lord is a particular kingdom, and it is a narrow way. There will be no deviation. There will be no lawlessness. We are not free to cut our own path. And friends, that goes against us in our core, in our culture of individualism. There is a way, and it's carved out ahead of us. It's one of the many reasons why we have to understand that we don't build the kingdom. The way is laid out, and we walk in it. We're not free to cut our own path. We're told that there are bad and good trees, and they'll be recognized by their bad and good fruit. Again, he asserts his authority and his right to judge over his disciples and his kingdom. And there will be those who manage to keep the letter of the law, he says at the end of the sermon. But they fail to truly understand the beautiful way of the kingdom and they will be told to depart. There will be a people who think that they found a synthesizer and they can just plug in the right notes and do it until they die. He's saying, that was never the music that any of this intended. And some of you are like, that seems like kind of a harsh reading. I wouldn't read it quite like that. It sounds a little too authoritative, just... Just consider, though, the response of the original hearers at the end of chapter 7. In verse 28, it says this, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
He wasn't just a counselor. He wasn't a mere lawgiver. He was a king. You see, part of the good news of Jesus' sermon is finally someone who has spoken with authority. The authority of a king has shown up and appears to intend to establish a kingdom according to his righteous way. After all, the way of the king is only as secure as the king's power and authority and trustworthiness to secure it and sustain it. And Jesus seems to have that kind of authority. I like what he's talking about, and I think he might actually do it. That's the good news of the announcement of this king and the way of his kingdom. Now, we're going to have a lot of time over the next many weeks to spend here. You're going to have a lot of time in your household to spend in these passages. But before we close this morning, I need to spend just a few moments going back to the beginning of this sermon. Back to the Beatitudes in chapter 5. Back to the introduction. Let's briefly go back there and let me confess, first of all, that the Beatitudes deserve far greater attention than a mere 10 minutes at the end of a Sunday morning message. I hope that you'll give them the attention that they deserve this week and coming weeks as you study together. I also would point you to a sermon series that we went through just a few years ago entitled Blessed, where we preached through the Beatitudes over about a dozen weeks or so. We'll have those sermons up online by the end of September for you, if that would be helpful, if you want to spend your time there. But I want to just close our time here by being honest with my own wrestling with Jesus' sermon. And friends, if you if you give it your attention, you will this sermon is one that you will wrestle with. I really like what it has to say. I really like the Sermon on the Mount. I like the way of the kingdom. It sounds like a kingdom that's truly beautiful. It sounds righteous. It sounds equitable. It sounds generous. It sounds like the place that I would like to live out my days and maybe even on into eternity. But I have a nagging feeling as I read it. And I know I'm not the only one that the problem I have with this kingdom isn't the way of the king, but that I'm not, I'm not really sure I fit in. Something tells me if I showed up, it's all going to go wrong. Something tells me that if he lets me into that kingdom, he's not just. And that he doesn't care for the others who have managed to get in if I get in there. I can't even imagine a better kingdom than the one that the king himself ensures with a, a golden rule that isn't just a fleeting fancy, isn't just a childhood nursery rhyme, but actually the law of the land, the place where people actually do good to one another as they would do to themselves all the time. That's compelling to me, and I'm not sure that I fit in there. I would love to. I'm in, except the fruit of my life quickly reveals that I'm out. Can my heart really bear the examination of what God sees in secret? I would be grateful to receive a kingdom that can't be shaken, but I'm not sure I can survive the Lord's consuming fire. You can see the problem, right? I mean, citizens of such a kingdom, I mean, they must be absolute gospel beasts, right? Perfectly obedient, strong, courageous. These people are righteous, Perfect specimens of righteous humanity. 
these disciples that make up the citizenry of the kingdom of heaven. He opened his mouth and he taught them, say, Blessed are the poor spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he's got my attention again. The kingdom isn't for perfect specimens of humanity. It's for the broken. It's for those who know that the only, only really the king, he's the only one who really belongs there. They bring nothing to the table of grace but need and a desire to enter. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Courageous gospel beasts. No. People who see their sin and, and they mourn. They see brokenness all around me and I long for the comfort of another way, another kingdom. Not just for the suffering that is out there, but for the suffering that I bring to right here. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What do I have to commend myself to God? I don't even have much to commend myself among men. I wasn't born a child of God. And yet, he seems to think that I'm an inheritor of his kingdom. This is what he has made of me. You see, the Beatitudes, it turns out, are not a description of what Jesus finds when he looks at us. It seems to be what he is doing in us, among us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Oh, I do love the justice and the equity and the righteousness of the kingdom of our Lord. I I long for this way, and yet I can never seem to attain it. I had the same mechanistic sort of view of, of the law Right around the same time as I was entering those notes into my keyboard, I thought, I'm going to try to be righteous for 60 seconds. I'm going to think right. I'm going to do right. If somebody comes by, I'm going to help them. I, literally, I tried this. This isn't a sermon illustration. All right, this is, this is real life. Some of you are like, yeah, I did the same thing. Silly Jeremiah. And, and then I said, like, 60 seconds, no problem. And I tried it for, for like five minutes. I'm going to do right. I'm going to, I'm going to, Oh, I'm supposed to pray constantly, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be angry. What, what, sh- shut up, I'm trying to focus. <laughs> Hunger and thirst for righteousness, but I can't attain it. I know, though, according to his own words, he will satisfy. He's going to bring something to pass. The good work that he has begun in me, he will be faithful to complete it. The righteousness of the kingdom of heaven doesn't seem to be self-righteousness after all. It seems to be the perfect righteousness, not of the citizens, but of the king. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now the blessings are beginning to do their work in me. The song of the artist is beginning to sing in me. I'm poor and I may enter. What a merciful king. Surely I can hold the door open behind me. See. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the chaff is beginning to clear. The way of the king is more than rules that I could never follow. His his way is beautiful, and I'm beginning to see it. And I'm beginning in my faltering way to follow after it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the king is reconciling a people not only to himself, but to one another. 
He's making a new people, a new citizenship. But it seems to be more than citizens. It seems to be a family, a family of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you revile, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, or your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, I, I once thought that I would never have access to such a beautiful way, such a way of righteousness, such a perfect kingdom, so beautiful. But the king has opened a way for all who would enter by faith. So I'm not ashamed of that good news. No, I, I would live to sing its beauty in all of my failing efforts at obedience. And I would die to proclaim the goodness of my king and the way of his kingdom. Entered with nothing. Exited a citizen of a kingdom that's that's beginning to look like what the king is fashioning by the graciousness of his way. You see, just before Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5, he tells us that Jesus went about teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What he doesn't open up for us just yet there in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew opens up later. And by the time we get to chapter 16, verse 21 Matthew records this. From that time, not before, but from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, that's unexpected. The king of the kingdom is about to die and be raised. Jesus really is the king of the Beatitudes. He became poor. He was sorrowful and afflicted. He was meek before his accusers. His heart's cry was for the will of the Father alone. His plea was for the merciful forgiveness of his accusers. His words and deeds were in perfect harmony. His ministry was healing and restoration and reconciliation. And he gave his life to secure grace for all who could never live up to the standard of righteousness on their own. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is good news, and it's been secured for us, not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of our king himself. It's not just an invitation to enter. It is the way of our entrance. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is good news. It's been secured for us. So that the king is also the savior. And the savior is also the king. Brothers and sisters, we're going to have a lot of time to make application. But you can see the application already being made by Jesus in the way that he crafts this sermon. We see from Jesus telling, from his teaching here, as well as his life, that he's not only able to establish a kingdom by his word, He's able to bring a people undeserving into it. He's the only one. He is the firstborn from among the dead, right? He is the righteous one of the kingdom. 
And he takes a people who are not righteous by means of his sacrificial forgiveness on the cross and the victory of his resurrection that declares that it worked. And he takes a people undeserving and brings us into this beautiful kingdom. This morning in the whole of our study and the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to rejoice, to believe, to understand and place our faith in to be transformed by the news of the King and of his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are King. I pray that the first thing that happens by way of an application of your sermon to every one of our hearts is the application that there is a King and we are not it. There is a way of the kingdom, and it is not like our own. I pray that we would sit in that long enough for it to begin to change a few things about what we believe and the way that we, therefore, walk. I pray, Lord, that as a people of faith who have heard the king also utter of your own suffering, your own sacrificial death for the forgiveness of all who would place their faith in you so that you might be just to bring in sinners who ought to be condemned, but you were condemned in our place so that there is a lion on the throne of heaven. When we look at him, you look as a lamb who was slain. Thank you, Jesus. We, we like what we read. We find compelling what we hear. I pray that your spirit would work this word in us. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. We trust you alone. You have authority and power and grace to work it in our midst. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus the King. Amen.